because we're made in the image of God and there's a sense where we know God, at least subconsciously is how I read that. And then that's manifest itself out in these certain ways, in these certain existential ways. So you might deny that there's meaning in life, but you're going to live like there's meaning in life. You might deny that there's good and evil, but you will still cast something evil. You might deny that we have guilt, but you'll still feel guilty. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the CPT Podcast. Today our guest is Josh Chatra, who is the Executive Director of New City Fellows, as well as a member of the St. Anselm Fellowship here at the CPT. We're talking with Josh about a new book he's just released entitled Telling a Better Story, How to Talk About God in a Skeptical Age. We talk with Josh a lot about apologetics and what he's doing in the book, and we're really excited to share this conversation with you today, and we'll get right into it now. Josh Shatra, great to have you on the show today, brother. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. We're delighted to have you. Uh, we have been friends for a while now. You are a fellow of the Center for Pastor Theologians and an all-around excellent uh, <laughs> dude. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and it's been fun over the years to have our, uh, speaking personally, just to kind of connect with you. And you've been, you, when you were uh, at Liberty University, uh, you were kind enough to have me out there to to, uh, I think at least once, maybe no, twice, twice to, to yeah, is that right? Yeah. We have it twice. Yeah. Uh, to come out and do some stuff and that kind of deepen our friendship. And now you are, uh, partnering with our, my dear friend, John Yates, uh, in, um, Raleigh, North Carolina at Holy Trinity and running a fellows program down there. We're going to have to have you back to talk more about your own life story, which is a fascinating one and uh, ministry and intellectual and spiritual development, all the rest of it. But today we want to focus on uh, your recent book uh, entitled Telling a Better Story, How to Talk About God in a Skeptical Age. Uh, it's, it, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, in the, in the genre of apologetics. I mean, it's an apologetics book in essence. Yeah. And, um, you, you've had an interest in apologetics for a good while now. Talk to us about that. How did that develop? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it wasn't, it's not actually what I did my training in. Um, I'm, I, I consider myself a theologian. Um, and I did my PhD under a New Testament scholar, doing New Testament theology. So, but what happened along the way is I started doing some, some Bart Ehrman reading who's for, Mm -hmm. you don't know Bart Ehrman, he's agnostic uh, New Testament scholar at UNC teaches some at Duke as well. And so, and was it, by the way, was a, was a Moody and Wheaton college grad. That's right. Yeah. And then, uh, went to, uh, went to Princeton and began a kind of deconversion process there. And, and so, and then he was writing these popular New York times bestsellers, uh, you know, one after the other. And I, <laughs> I looked at my conservative uh, new Testament uh, doctoral father and said, you know, 
where are all the conservatives <laughs> with these books? Is there an answer to any of this? <laughs> yeah. As far as writing at a popular kind of level, dealing yeah. with things like textual criticism, which, you know, for most people is yeah. kind of a, a snoozer until you need it, um, until you're challenged. Mm. So a 19 year old comes to your office and you don't know how to respond if you're a pastor. So, um, so he, he kind of looked at me and said, well, why don't you get started? And uh, mm. that, that developed into a couple of books I did with uh, Daryl Bach and Andreas Kostenberger. And, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, I was kind of thrown into this apologetic ring um, <laughs> as, as actually a, more of a theologian is at least is how I identified at the time. Yeah. And at the same time I was, this was going on, I was in pastoral ministry and it just, seemed like uh, things had changed rapidly even in 10 or 15 years from when I was a student and the types of questions that high school students yeah. and even undergrads were asking because of the internet, because of uh, kind of modern pluralism and the media, the various reasons. All of a sudden, I saw kind of two things happening. One, kind of some academic interest on one hand, and the other hand, just this need to help the church and build the church up. And so that's how I got into it uh, with two New Testament scholars. But then once I jumped in uh, kind of, and was willing to identify, Hey, I'm, 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 I can be an apologist. That's fine. What I realized is some of my intuitions um, were different than some of the people who were kind of dominating the field at the time. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, and it makes sense because I'm I'm coming at it from a slightly different angle, yes. um, as a pastor and also as a theologian, and so so some of my intuitions were different, and I certainly learned from those people who were kind of at the top of the field, trained in an analytical philosophy in that tradition. But but um, so so it's it's not saying they weren't doing anything right. It was just as I went to go to a university about this time as well and to teach seminary students, I realized that the way they were being taught was really how to have conversations with other philosophers and not necessarily how to have these conversations with people in the church and their neighbors. Mm. And so that was, that was the other thing that kind of shifted in my journey in this field of being willing to identify in this world and then, okay, how do I help people? And then realizing the way that, pastors were being trained to help people. I, I actually didn't think that that was that too practical in the way it was being done. Mm. Do, can I ask a question, Josh, just as I th- hearing that part of your story and having, having looked at your new book and thinking about my own training in apologetics, but um, uh, I guess it would have been as an undergrad. And um, this is, I mean, you already alluded to this, but you're kind of angle into apologetics is very different than in in this book is very different than kind of the quote unquote classical apologetics that I would have been familiar with. Uh, you know, some people perhaps will have been familiar with like evidentialist apologetics on the one hand and then presuppositional apologetics on the other. And then uh, you already alluded to philosophical kind of analytical yeah. uh, apologetics and um you know, you're, you're, you're doing something a little different. So I wonder if to kind of frame up this conversation a little more, you can talk about this book and put yourself 
either on the map or get us a new map and uh, maybe say, actually, there's this this place over here that the other people aren't even even talking about. Um, yeah, because you're not quite you're not quite starting with like the depravity of humanity and the noetic effects of sin um, as a presuppositional apologetic. Uh, apologist might, nor are you listing 20 evidences for a creator um, as yeah. an evidentialist. And I'm obviously speaking in in, in broad strokes here. Um, yeah. But yeah. I want to underscore for our listeners that this is this is pretty different what you what you're doing in this book. Yeah, so I, I mean, I'll, I'll just want to say that I believe in evidence and I believe in total depravity. Yes. So that's yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, to place yourself in, op- op- in opposition to either of those things. Um, but I, I, I would, um, well, maybe, maybe take it like this. There's different angles in, and I think that's one of the questions I often get because we're working on a certain map in North America that, that we've inherited. So, so often it's, yes. are you classical presuppositional? And yes. I'm like, eh, I'm, I don't really love the question. So, <laughs> and what I mean by that is it's interesting that that those two kind of categories dominated the, the 20th century North American debate yes. all the while over the pond, you know, C.S. Lewis and mm-hmm. Sayers and Chesterton, they were all up to something a little bit different. Yes. And I, and I, and I think that sometimes it's, it's an understandable question. So I'm not, uh, it's an understandable question given our context. Yes. But I think it's sometimes what's happened is it's, um, it's, it's, it's kind of left us with kind of narrow imaginations about what the discipline can be. And, and those categories didn't really restrict some of the most creative, I think, uh, British thinkers in the 20th century Huh. We were both developing, they were working with story and imagination and looking at, I think, um, something that I would actually call more Pascalian, Blaise Pascal, and more mm. picking up on some anthropology anthropology from Augustine that both presuppositionalists and classical guys and, and, and women who are in the discipline were missing. So I, I think this is where... Um, reading widely and, and seeing maybe outside of these categories a little bit. And then what I'm trying to do is pull things together and what, what can I learn from the various traditions? And then at the same time, give people a model. So, so what I'm not doing in this book is I'm not, I'm not talking about all that, that I just described to you Mm. um, because I'm trying to give a real practical book for the church and there's a lot of end notes, a lot of footnotes for those theologians and, and, and philosophers who are reading the book to kind of track what I'm doing behind the scenes. But as far as influences, it's, I mean, I'm, uh, it's, it's Charles Taylor's important um, in the work and his background as a modern philosopher and how I'm thinking about this. But then there is the, you know, uh, the kind of idea that, that Lewis and Tolkien are developing, which is, you know, in the early church, of course, there was this, uh, the early church apologists were trying to really reflect on the seat of logic, as they put it. There's a seat of logic. And that becomes this common, common ground. But uh, Lewis and Tolkien see there's a seat of story. Ah. And, and so among it, Christians and non Christians alike, Josh, is that the point? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's Excuse a me. seat of story. And of course, they're, they're as, as, as writers, they're picking up on how, 
ancient myths could have pointed to the true myth, the myth that became fact, as Lewis wrote, yes. uh, in, in Jesus Christ. And I think that that's, um, I think that's a real opportunity for us as a kind of common ground that we all think in story, we're storing animals. And so even though, um, I mean, just look, what are we doing during the pandemic? Everyone's you know, binge watching Netflix. I mean, we, we surround ourselves with these stories and, and that becomes kind of a connection point. And if you actually look at the contemporary stories that are being told, they're stories of, of good and evil and redemption and quest for, for being love and finding love. And so it's getting at what I call key pe- uh, features of personhood or as N.T. Wright has recently wrote in a book, he, he calls this vocational signposts. Yes. And so it's actually stepping into what are people uh, existentially just, you know, they might deny God, but they're going to live for something. They, they're gonna, you know, they have these longings, these existential quests that they're on and stepping in those types of things. And I think when we do that, it's, it's, it, it primarily sees people. Yes, we're in some sense rational beings, but we're also beings who love and who imagine. And so it's, it, it, it enables us to step, step in there as a starting point in a culture that now has in many ways, um, seen itself as move, moving away, moving beyond Christianity. Mm. So it's taking a kind of C.S. Lewis's and in, in Tolkien's, there's this seed of story, but it's, it's also extending that to another level because it's also picking up on that what happens in the West when you have these, um, as, as Jamie Smith puts it, these gospel craters that drop in the culture that changes culture and so you have these Christian aspirations that of justice, of universal benevolence, of this, uh, you know, of this longing for redemption and to escape guilt. These, these, these Christian aspirations that the culture still has, even though they've moved beyond Christianity. Yes. And so it's, it's picking up Lewis and Tolkien's kind of point there, but then extending it with a, with a recognition, as many scholars have today, that that we haven't, we're not in Christendom anymore, but we haven't moved quite completely beyond Christendom. And that, that has shaped our aspirations. I mean, uh, an example of this is Tom Holland's new book, Dominion, where he's really tracing all of this out. And it's a popular book, but it's, it's, it's quite rich and, and lengthy as well, but he's really tracing this out. And I pick up on his argument. Wow. And so, so Josh, you're, you know, it's, it's, Telling a better story as a as a book on apologetics and commending the faith uh, to those in a skeptical age, but rather than making a better argument, telling a better story rather yes. than making a better argument, uh, drill down a little bit more on that, right? And and you've already used in this conversation words like imagination, story. Uh, th- this is not the way <laughs> I, I have tended to think about apologetics. And certainly, you know, I remember pouring over Norman Geisler's big old philosophical arguments for, you know, or Christian apologetics and all this sort of all, uh, kind of analytical philosophy sort of stuff, intellectual arm wrestling as the yeah. approach to apologetics. What you, I mean, again, to kind of reiterate, you, you're doing something quite different. It's telling a better story as opposed to making a better argument. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's arguments built in, right? Yes. There's arguments built in, but I think it's, 
Um, it's recognizing that people put things together in story. And so if we're, um, this is again, to, to refer back to Charles Taylor, he says, he talks in his works about a social imaginary, which is how we spontaneously assume the world to be. And so what we spontaneously just say that, well, that's just common sense. Well, oftentimes what we view as common sense isn't so much something we've reasoned to, but something we've inherited yes. because we're born into a story that's bigger than ourselves and a story that's certainly constructed by the society around us. So, so once we do that, we absorb a certain story, right? When we begin to, you know, talk and understand and use language and, and learn language. So, so, so with that, um, when I'm, when I'm talking to someone, I can't just imagine that they've reasoned, like they've ground up just kind of reasoned their way to their common sense conclusions. But, but now in a post-Christian society in, in the, in the secular centers of the West, um, they have all of these objections to Christianity, but they're really rooted in certain assumptions. And what Taylor says is the way that a social imaginary is passed down, it's through the stories and myths that a culture um, tells and then passes down. So, so what, what happens then is that people have absorbed a certain rationality, a certain way of reasoning. And if we yeah. just come in and play on that turf, then mm-hmm. I think for one, if, if all we're using is reason, we're not, we're assuming that they're primarily rational beings. But if we, if we can challenge certain assumptions while at the same time finding the deeper aspirations of this true story that's there, we want justice. We want to, we want to love and be loved. We, we, we feel a guilt and we're trying hard to escape this guilt that we feel. If, if we step into those things and say, Hey, you, you're trying to live this out according to a meta narrative, a story that you've inherited, but it's, it's not actually working. Um, and then saying it, it actually makes better sense along the Christian story. Yeah. Um, and so it's, and I think, you know, one of the ways I, I teach people to do this is just, you know, a great way to start a conversation with somebody say, Hey, tell me your story. Yes. You know, and, yeah. And I think for people who are trained on worldview, they've, there's a lot of similarities here, but if you start off, you know, with a neighbor and say, Hey, what's your worldview? They're probably going to run from you. But if, if you say, <laughs> if you say, Hey man, tell me your story. Not only is that kind of normal. I mean, well, I think on one hand, it's not that normal because we don't take an interest in our neighbors. We don't attend yes. to them. So, so, but it's a, it would, but they don't, they're not going to think typically that you're weird. They're going to think that you're caring, which is a good yeah. thing. And if you listen closely, what you're going to hear is where they're going for defined morality or moral code, where they're finding meaning and purpose. And if you begin to listen to that, that those open doors for conversations. And what I'm trying to do is give people a grid because it's one thing to talk about story and talk about Charles Taylor or Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and how we combine these things. But it's another thing to take a congregation or mm. take leaders and say, here's an actual, here's an actual framework that helps a mental framework that helps to guide you in conversations. And that's what I'm trying to do in the book. I love so a lot it. of this conversation I, I talk a little bit about it in the book, but I'm, this is kind of, I'm giving you guys behind the scenes of what I've tried to execute in the book. 
Talk to us, Josh, about the theological resources you draw on or, or kind of instincts or insights that, that have helped, um, helped you move, helped move you in this direction. I mean, you're talking Charles Taylor and some philosophical notions Mm -hmm. and perspectives. What are the theological, uh, assumptions that undergird this, this move for you? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's this, you know, that we're made in the image of God, Yes. And, and so because we're made of the image of God, we have this, this sense of God or sense of religion, you know, as, as even going back to Calvin on that point. So I see that manifested in certain ways where, you know, in Romans one, where Paul's talking about everyone actually knows God. Well, what is, what, what does that, what does that mean? I, of course it doesn't mean, that Paul is saying that everyone actually has a relationship with God, a saving relationship. But I think what he's saying is because we're made in the image of God and there's a sense where we know God, at least subconsciously is how I read that. And then that's manifest itself out in these certain ways and in these certain existential ways. So you you might deny that there's meaning in life, but you're going to live like there's meaning in life. You might yes. deny that there's good and evil, but you will still and, and cast something and, evil. You might deny that we have guilt, but you'll still feel guilty. Yes. And so, so because, so that, so that kind of assumption drives, I think, or undergirds some of the things I'm fleshing out. But I also would just say, you know, I think these things just from, from preaching and from, and from talking to neighbors and doing evangelism, these things actually work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, so, and, and I'm not saying like, just, um, uh, you know, just, well, what do whatever works in quote there. But I, I would say, you know, because apologetics is a practical discipline, we need to say, we always need to be taking the pulse of where culture's at. And I yeah. think a lot of times what people are doing is they're starting, well, they take their favorite theologian in church history, say from, you know, well, uh, I don't want to pick on anybody, but you, you just say, say from the Reformation or for, and then say, well, how did they do apologetics or how did Aquinas do apologetics? Well, I think we can learn a lot. I mean, I just edited a book on the history of apologetics. So I think those are important conversations and things we can learn. But we, but apologetics in a similar way that preaching would be is, it's always to a very particular person, not an absolute yeah. Yes. So context and culture is very important in these discussions. And if we're just going to say, let's do it like this person, I, I think it, it's just not going to work. So what we're, what we're trying to do with, with this and what, what I'm trying to do is take, what can we learn from the past? But then we always have to start to, to ask those questions of who am I speaking to? Yeah. And, 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 
you know, sorry. One, one, I mean, one of the things I I, I appreciate so appreciate about your work and your approach is the optimism, <laughs> right? I mean, uh, about the cur- the current cultural moment for apologetics and for Christians, right? I mean, I think sometimes we, you know, the the kind of old school apologetics approaches we're embattled as Christians. Uh, you know, there's the secular city. We've got to kind of arm ourselves with with arguments and and there's a kind of defensive anxious embattled disposition i get the sense from you that you're quite optimistic you see real opportunity yeah. in our current cultural moment yeah. for the the commending of christian faith i i don't think i'm misreading you on that talk to us about that a little bit yeah i i, I don't know if i'd say optimism yeah please tell me what, so what, what what's a better way to put it uh, hopeful, hopeful. There, well, there we go. Yeah. Right. A more theological a, a, a way good, of talking. Uh, yeah, a good <laughs> Christian theological word. <laughs> I stand corrected, gentlemen. <laughs> but I no, but I mean, I think there is. Um, sure, I mean, I think for for instance, I mean, I think one of the things that for a while people were saying is, oh, postmodernism. This is yes, this is horrible. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And 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 I would say to that. Yeah, no. I mean, and so postmodernism is both an opportunity and a challenge, just like modernism was, just like the Enlightenment was. And so my fear is that we try to pull people back to modernism as if modernism was our friend, but postmodernism. Yeah. Is really and, and so back in the good old days of Voltaire. <laughs> well, not to, I mean, I know we're kind of being a little cheeky about it, but that is kind of how it's framed sometimes. Like modernism is the worldview that was founded on, you know, and there's historical discussions and debates here, but that is actually explicitly how it's framed as if modernism, what is the, is the Christian approach to, um, you know, philosophical foundationalism or whatever the case is. And postmodernism is the post-Christian one. And it sounds like you're kind of challenging that assumption, Josh, a little bit. Oh no, I'm challenging. Oh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, in the sense that I, I mean, I'm I'm challenging it absolutely because full throated, I'm full throated, full throatedly challenging. I'm saying every every age we have to look for challenges and opportunities. Yeah, there it is. And so um, Christianity, I mean, we have a certain because of our eschatological kind of posture, like we have this already not yet theology that says, you know, whatever age before Christ comes back, it's not going to be quite right. <laughs> yes. And, and so if we get at two at home, then I think we've got problems. But then if we say, Hey, there's no opportunities here, or let's just go back to nostalgic days of the enlightenment. We've got problems too. Yes. And I think, I mean, one of the things I'm pulling on here, I mean, so when people hear me say this, and probably listen to this podcast, they'll think, oh, you know, he's he's cozying up to postmodernism. I'd say, listen, the idea of story and the idea of going for the heart is Augustinian. There it is. So, so if you read City of God, I mean, what City, what City of God is doing is in the first 10 books, he's critiquing the other ways to be happy in the ancient Roman world. And and by the way, for those of you who know, know your City of God, I mean, Augustine is responding as a pastor to on the ground apologetic challenges as they're as as the pagans are fleeing from Rome and that's just been burned down and and sacked and now they're saying this is all Christianity's fault that this is happening to the empire 
And so event, so Augustine, they're all fleeing to North Africa. Augustine saying, Hey, I've got to, res- I got to, I've got to respond to this as a pastor and as a theologian. And so he sets out on city of God and the first 10 books is, Hey, you're looking for a way to be happy. And it's not, it's not the way you think it is. It's not going to work. Mm-hmm. While he's saying actually Christianity is a good thing. And so he's already making, yes, he's making arguments, but he's critiquing their story. And then, and then the second half, 11 to 22, it's all, hey, let me give you creation, fall, redemption, recreation and tell you how that makes sense of the world. Yes. So, so I would make the case that, you know, if you call what I'm doing anything, you could say it's pre-modern um, because it, it finds a certain connection with Augustine. And of course, Augustine's been so influential in the West that, you know, he, 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 he set up, you know, as, as many have argued that, you know, the modern and even late modern context even anticipated that in some ways. But, um, so, so I think in other words, there's resources there, especially in, in the early church where they're dealing with a pluralistic world and they're dealing with people saying Christianity is not good. And so, um, and strange. And so there's a lot of resources to, to pull from, which is before modernism, which is before late modernism. Yes. Powerful. Yes, for sure. For sure. Talk to us, uh, Josh, will you, about, cause I know you've, you've thought about this, you're in a pastoral context, but, um, advice for pastors, uh, who'll be listening to this podcast, for example, who want to grow in their capacity to tell a better story, what do they do? Where do they go? How do they, how do they, how do they begin that work or keep work, keep kind of digging deeper? And, and uh, how do they grow in their preaching, for example? How yeah. do they better equip their congregants to tell a better story? What, what advice do you have for them? Yeah, I mean, I, on one hand, I would just say, um, don't be afraid to identify as an apologist. Yeah, um, and, I, and I say that because I think that, especially maybe our crowd, the people who might, a lot of the folks would be listening to this. I guess my admonishment would be maybe you're formed by the Academy more than you realize. And I think in the Academy, as you go in, we, if you're a pastor theologian, you want to be respected by your peers. And in the Academy, there's this, well, as Oskin has said, when he was at Oxford, they, his tutor said, don't ever say the word apologist. That's a dirty word around here. And if you start thinking about why that might be the case, and you, certainly some of it's probably, as you guys have been drawing out, like the ways that, you know, you have problems with the way it's been done. And I think that's, yes. that's fine. That's fine. But we need to realize that all the, all the early church fathers were apologists. They all wrote, pretty much all wrote significant works as pastor theologians, as apologists. Yes. I mean, it's hard to find a pastor who wasn't doing that. Josh, is it, is it hard to be an outward-facing Christian and an outward-facing pastor and preacher and not be a, an apologist in a certain sense? Well, I, you're cer- you certainly are, but I guess my fear, and this is my encouragement, is that if you don't, if, if you're not willing to identify and 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 step into that field and read that that kind of literature, then I think that. You certainly are an apologist. It's whether are you going to be kind of thinking like one and pulling on the best resources to do that well. Yes. And and, and so I think the biggest thing is um, I would just say is, I mean, 
every if if you have people in your congregation under forty and you're in, and or you're in an urban area, uh, you know, doubt is. Um, I mean, that's just common now, whether they're talking yeah. or not. So you can assume yes. that people are doubting, and and because they're so absorbed, because we're all so absorbed by the narratives and the social imaginary of our age, we've got to be stepping in there and helping them believe. We've got to be dealing with our unbelief. I mean, that's the heart of sin. And I and I think without buying into a kind of if you buy into a narrow view of apologetics that's okay, it's just analytical reasoning and I can't pull syllogisms with me into the pulpit. That's not going to fly. I say, I, I get it a hundred percent. I would just say, stretch your imagination. I mean, um, and maybe that to go back, maybe our minds have been so kind of trapped in a certain 20th century debate in North America, which actually isn't a bigger picture of what the history of the discipline has been doing. Yes, a great word, and I, I, I'm sure you agree. There's a there's a there's a great opportunity for preachers to model telling a better story in and through their sermons. That is, a, even though it's not an explicit and direct equipping of their congregation in that sense, it is an implicit equipping of their congregation and their congregants because they can see the preacher, the pastor, taking up. Uh, intellectual challenges and then kind of winsomely telling the Christian story that draws on or, or taps into these echoes in the culture, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and reframing them in light of the story of Christ that can be really powerful and helpful, I think, for, for the ordinary pew sitter. Yeah. And if you're, and if you think about it, I mean, so much of, I mean, I had to, to, to lean again on Augustine. I mean, I think what he's doing in confessions when he's able to really look at the idols of his life, what he's, what he's really doing is he's narrating for his congregation, for the church, a kind of a way to go back and see sin and repent. Yeah. of. Yes. And I would say that in a, but he's, as he's doing it, he's trying on these, he's trying on Manichaeanism. He's trying on, um, you know, uh, Neoplatonism. He's trying on uh, act- academic skepticism, and he's showing, "Hey, that mm-hmm. doesn't actually work for me." Yes, yes. And and then he gets to the end, and what's he do in chapter uh, books ten through thirteen? He narrates the Christian story and reflects on that. And so, um, but he's he's doing that, and then I think that equipped him to be able to give his full apologetic work in City of God. And I think for us as pastors, my point is, once we train people to do this in their own life. Once we train them to say, what story are you really living out? What's, what, what are the habits in your life and how are they forming you? And how are they, you know, you know, what, what, what story is actually dominating your own life? And once they're able to identify that in their own life, that's going to make them more capable apologists and evangelists. Yeah. They're able to do that in a real way, not just to track, not a four, you know, here's four steps, but, but to talk about meaning and purpose and where you, where are you really getting love from and where, you know, where, where, where are you tapping meaning from? Because they, they, they've been there themselves. And so I actually see these things as tied to discipleship. And so to the extent that someone might take up like a Jamie Smith and say, Hey, what narratives are actually playing out in our lives and are dominating our habits? I would 
go a step further and, and say, once you're able to do that, it's, 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 it's an easy kind of bridge at that point to be able to have conversations with your neighbors. Marvelous. Marvelous. Uh, g- give us a book recommendation or two, Josh. We, I'm going to recommend your book, your books, actually, uh, Telling a Better Story, How to Talk About God in a Skeptical Age. Our listeners should grab a copy of that. Give us another recommendation or two of, of folks that are listening that really have, you've whetted their appetite or they want to dig deeper. Where should they go? What would be most helpful? Well, if you want to start with Charles Taylor, we've mentioned him. I mean, Ethics of Authenticity, is a great place to start. I mean, secular I'm glad age. you didn't say sec- secular age. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ethics of Authenticity is actually a short, shorter book. And I think it has two titles. I'm, I'm sure our, the listeners can look that up because I sometimes see his books will come out with two titles and I can't think of the other one. But that that's a short one. And I think a very powerful one as far as to pick, picking up both the aspirations of where we are at in late modernism and then also the challenges and problems. Um, I mean, of, of course, the guy who's doing this in a, in a secular space, Tim Keller's making sense of God is yeah. getting at these existential kind of um, uh, categories as well. And then our book that came, that just came out through Zondervan, I edited with uh, Ben Forrest and Alistair McGrath, the history of apologetics I think one of the things that you'll see in that book for somebody who really wants to step into it is um, we cover about 45 different apologists and you see some of the diversity. If you were kind yes. of to your point That's earlier awesome. back that, you know, it's like, well, this was what I viewed apologetics as. Well, well that pro- that is in part, but there's a bigger story to be told about the field. And if you, you know, that, that certainly doesn't define what we had in, for instance, the 20th century in, in Great Britain with people like Chesterton and Lewis. So, um, so yeah, those are a few that I'd recommend as kind of entry points. That's excellent, Josh. Uh, and, and thank you for this. This was a, an encouraging and insightful conversation and we're grateful for you and all the good work you're doing, um, uh, and, and helping to equip the church to engage the culture winsomely and thoughtfully and thankful for you, uh, being a part of the CPT brother and, uh, joining us for the podcast today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the CPT Podcast, a theology podcast for the church. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider throwing us a like, sharing the podcast online, subscribing, leaving a review. Uh, Anything like that would go a long way towards helping other people hear about the podcast. Uh, The CPT Podcast is a ministry of the Center for Pastor Theologians. You can learn more about the CPT by visiting us at pastortheologians.com. You can also find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our host for today's episode was Todd Wilson. Our producer and editor was Trenton Jones. Our music was composed by Andrew Gerlicher. I'm Zach Wagner. Thanks for listening.